begin with Acts 2, 42-48. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage today to study it, I pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds for what you need to say. Some of us are coming in here today longing for something uh, for ourselves directly. God, I pray that you would do that. But more importantly, you would call us to something greater than just to figure something else out for ourselves, but to see how we are part of something greater, something bigger called your church. So, Lord, I pray that your, your blessing, your anointing would be not just on this sermon and this time together, but over the course of these four weeks as we figure out what does your church look like and why did you design it, how do you want to use it, and how you are calling us to be a part of it. And so, Lord, teach us now for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, a lead pastor. I'm really, really glad you're here with us, whether it's in person or you're joining us online. Uh, I hope that this little short four-week sermon series uh, just helps you get clarity on who God is calling us to be as a church. Uh, when my oldest daughter, who is now 24, uh, was only five years old and her little sister was two, we were riding in the car along the empty streets of Cedar Rapids. The sun had set, it was nice and quiet, not too much traffic out, and we're driving the familiar roads back to our home on Kent Drive, when all of a sudden, my five-year-old blurts out, hey, look at those hot guys. Now, I'm driving along, little stuns, um, why is my five-year-old kindergartner checking some guy out on the road, and I, I'm thinking, did I hear that correctly? So I look over at my wife who has the same stunned expression I do, when all of a sudden her two-year-old sister yells out, yeah, hot guys. I'm like, what is going on? Why are my daughters like so fixated upon the sexiness of the male species? Like, I don't understand what is happening. So Leanne begins a conversation. Karis, wh what did you say? She goes, those hot guys. And Leanne's like, what guys are you talking about? Because, I mean, I don't see any on billboards. There's no one out walking around. It's nighttime. It's quiet. And all of a sudden, Kara says, right there, that hot guy. And this car is driving by, and I'm expecting to see some guy in there. And instead, it's like some old lady. And there on the back windshield is the emblem of the University of Iowa, the Hawkeye. I was quite relieved to know that my kindergartner was not lusting after uh, men quite yet. Uh, that she was actually all about the Iowa Hawkeyes. My wife and I were hearing one thing as she is saying something entirely different. The reason I tell that story is because I think something similar happens with the word church. 
I think t- many times someone says the word church, but the listener has something very different in mind. Someone says the word church and one person thinks of a great big cathedral. Someone else might think of their small church plant, which meets in a school or in a veterans post or down at the fairgrounds. Someone else, though, maybe if they're in China or North Korea, they think of their house church, which has to meet secretly. Or, or maybe if they're from rural Kenya, they think of some open air structure that they have to walk miles to go and be a part of. Or maybe if they're from the inner city, they think of a group of people out serving the homeless. Or for some people, when they hear the word church, they think of a political organization. What exactly is the church? Is it just a big cathedral? Is it just a group of people meeting in a home? Is it a nonprofit? Is it a political organization? What is the church? We're going to take four weeks to study the church. We're going to put together a definition for it. The, the reason is it's important. I mean, for, for instance, it's important that we don't have a w- wide variety of opinions. That as we gather here to worship on Sundays and we get together in growth groups throughout the week, that, that we don't have these different ideas because it's going to cause misalignment. And so this is to kind of help us all just make sure we're on the same page. And just so you know, we're not doing this series out of reaction. Nothing bad's happening behind the scenes. We're not having to, okay, we better talk about this so we can fix some things. No, we're talking about this because things are healthy right now and we want to stay healthy. We also, we're trying to still figure out how do we use this building for God's glory? What does it mean for us as a church to make the most of this? As God has provided this, how can we move forward to use it? Not just to use it for ourselves here on Sundays, but how do we really make the most of it? That affects our definition of church. But, but also, what is the mission? Like, why do we exist? Because that comes out of the definition of the church as well. And so this is really important. As we get ready to move into the fall and have just some small you know, changes happening within our ministry, moving out of summer, it's important for us to just get on the same page and really have clarity. What is the church? When uh, my family and I moved here in 2012, I, I knew that as I interacted with people in the community, there would be a wide variety of definitions of church. That as they would meet me and say, oh, well, what, why'd you move to Waverly? Oh, well, we moved here to start a new church. That that word would cause all sorts of different ideas in their minds. I know there were some people who thought that meant that we were here to buy land and build some sort of building. I knew there were other people who thought this meant that we were like a cult and we were trying to start something in our home. Some people thought we would just like get a storefront and and start meeting. Other people, to them, a church was going to be out in the community doing various things, serving the poor. Other people, they didn't care. It was irrelevant to their life. And I think quite a few people also thought, well, yeah, it's not going to go. This is going to fail. There were all sorts of opinions and all sorts of thoughts about that word church. And so as I interacted with people and I was needing to put together a website as as various people were wondering, okay, what about this new church? Would I want to be a part of it? I wanted to have a definition that would try to help bring some clarity. Now, I wasn't, we hadn't launched publicly yet, so I wasn't having to work on a weekly sermon. So I used that time to work on some definitions. It was during that season that I came up with our definition of a Jesus follower, someone who loves like Jesus loves and lives like Jesus lived. Uh, It's also the time where I I gave clarity to our mission to invite the spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus. But it's also the time 
that I put together our definition of what is the church. But I had some parameters for it. Uh, number one parameter was I didn't want it to, to be about a style. That's what everyone wanted to know. What, what's the style of your church? The thing is, styles change. And I want us to have a definition that would help us weather through all sorts of changes. By the way, if you haven't noticed, Riverwood's gone through a lot of change. We, we've only been in existence for seven years, and yet we've probably met in, what, eight different places on Sunday mornings? Uh, you know, we've had some leadership changes. The biggest change is we actually got elders. I'm no longer kind of leading alone. You know, Jeff Willis led us in worship for, for a couple of years. Now we have Jake, you know, Leanne was leading uh, Kids Creek. Bridget's now doing a phenomenal job. Like we've had some changes. And yet our, throughout all those changes, our, our uh, definition has held us steady. Probably the, the biggest change we faced was one that every church in America faced. From March to May, we were asked not to assemble together because the governments were still trying to figure out how do we respond to this coronavirus. And so we agreed to, to, to you know, abide by our government's wishes and we went all online. But did we change as a church? So I wanted a definition that would help us weather through those changes. I also wanted a definition that wasn't going to be just steeped in some theological distinctive. I mean, we, we have some theological convictions here. But I, I didn't want those to be at the forefront of this defines who we are. Because I didn't want us to say, here's a theological distinctive we hold to. And that caused someone else to go, well, I used to be a part of a church like that. So there's no way I would want to be a part of that. And we lose out on the opportunity to minister to them. And so I, I wanted to avoid some of those theological distinctives. Also, I just wanted to avoid some general distinctives. I, I, what I really wanted was something that just seemed biblical. And it didn't seem to be just based upon preferences. And so I worked and worked and worked and distilled it down to the definition we're going to see over these next four weeks. So what is this definition? Well, I'm not going to roll it all out to you. Over the four weeks, we're going to build it together. I want to take you to Acts chapter 2 and look at verses 42 through 48 and help you discover this with me. What is the church? Because I think as you discover it alongside with me, it's going to help us have greater ownership of it and greater clarity on our definition. So if you didn't open your Bible yet, open it up to Acts chapter 2. Uh, I've already read verses 42 through 48, so I'm not going to read the entire thing again. Uh, just to give you a clue, though, we are going to be looking at it every week of this series as we then jump to other passages. Um, but our, our key passage is 42 through 48. What I want to do today to get us going is I want to start there at verse 42 because there's something key and critical in it that helps us understand the first part of our definition. So if you're open there to Acts uh, 2, start at verse 42. If you don't have a Bible, just look at it up on the screen. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Anyone here willing to admit that sometimes when you sit down to read the Bible, you, you just kind of skim over some portions? Okay, good. I'm not alone. I really thought that I was going to be the most heathen person in the room. Uh, you know, like you come to one of the genealogies. You just kind of skim through it. You, you even like, okay, anyone willing to admit it, you just skip it. Like, let's just move on to the good stuff. Okay, but it's not even those boring genealogies. Like sometimes even common stuff we skim over. Let me give you an example. If you were to take the book of Ephesians, all right, and honestly, I picked this at random. I was like, let's just take one of Paul's letters. All right, let's just take Ephesians. So you open up Ephesians, and Ephesians starts off just like so many of Paul's letters that we have recorded in the New Testament. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, 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 yeah. This is like all of his other letters. Let's move on. Let's get to the good stuff. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, now we're talking. Now it's getting good. Because, I mean, it says there that blessed be God. Why is God blessed? Because he has blessed us in Christ. And what has he blessed us with? Every spiritual blessing Every spiritual blessing. I mean, this is the kind of verse that pastors like me just begin to geek out over and we use in messages, but do you realize what we've done? We just skimmed right over verses one and two to get to the good stuff. And yet, if we say that we are Christians, we are saying that we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the scriptures are God-breathed. Which means all of this has been breathed out by God. Which means even verses 1 and 2 are important. So if you go back, you see Paul, an apostle. An apostle was someone who was being sent to establish the church, to strengthen the church. And notice he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of of God. You suddenly start realizing Paul's not doing this because it just seemed like a good career path. He's compelled. And then we start stopping going, am I compelled? Am I being compelled by the will of God? What am I giving my life to? We could go on. Do you see how there's good stuff even in verses one and two? This is not stuff to skip. It's not stuff to just skim. Now, while all scripture is God-breathed, it's been inspired, not all scripture will make the same impact. I, I don't think God put the genealogies in there to cause us to begin to weep, to go, oh God, thank you so much that I know the son of Boaz. I, it's in there because it's history. God is writing the story. It's still important. There's still things we can learn. Just because all scripture is inspired, it may not all make the same impact, but it's still important. We can't skim it and skip it. And yet, when we come to Acts chapter 2, we parachute drop into verse 42, we skim some stuff and even skip it. I can't tell you how many sermons I have heard on Acts 2, 42 through 48. Some of them very, very good. Way better than the one you're going to hear today. Like the type of stuff that just makes me go, yes, I will give my life to this. I mean, they are like life-changing type sermons. And yet even in those, they still make the same mistake that I make in my own personal reading. They skip over some stuff. Because, I mean, look at verse 42. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I mean, this is good stuff. This is key. And yet they've skipped something. Look at the very first two words. And they. It just seems like filler words. They're the type of things that you just kind of skip. Skim. Like, let's get to the good stuff. They devoted themselves. Oh, that's good. But 
and they? Like, seriously, Aaron, you're trying to draw something important out of and they? In fact, I discovered this week that several Bible translations leave out and. I thought maybe that's just because, you know, like I'm using the English Standard Version, and they just included it in there because they thought maybe that would read a little better. No, I discovered the word and is in the Greek. It's just, it gets really repetitious because it says and, 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 and so many times that to make it more understandable in English, a number of translations just leave and off. But I think the and is important. Because if we've parachute dropped into verse 42, the and says, hold on, don't rush ahead. There's some good stuff coming, but what you're about to read is linked to what just came. The and makes us have to go back and look at verse 41. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word, his word is Peter's word, his sermon. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 41 is the uh, kind of conclusion, if you will, of the story that's been running through Acts 2. Uh, when you begin Acts 2, you discover that it's the day of Pentecost, a Jewish feast. And so a number of Jews from all different areas have all come into Jerusalem for this feast. Well, Jesus has died on the cross, but rose again from the dead. And this word has kind of spread. Now, some people think it's all made up. It's all a lie. And yes, the people are starting to wonder. Well, those who believe it's true have gathered together. There's maybe 120 of them gathered in this, this room, this upper room. They're talking about all the things that have been happening. They're reminding each other of the things Jesus taught. Maybe they're singing a song together, reading stuff out of the, the Old Testament that makes them go, oh my goodness, like all of the things we just saw in witness, they've been prophesied. They were right here all along. And as they're together worshiping, there's suddenly this whoosh, like a derecho just hit. And as this whooshing sound happens, they look and these little tongues of flame descend down upon each one of them. And as they do so, suddenly they begin to praise God in languages they have never known before. They just can't help it. They just start praising God, but they start using the language they did not know in their childhood. Well, that whooshing sound was heard through the neighborhood. All these people have come into Jerusalem and they're stopping like, wait, what, what was that? Like, was there a tornado? And so they go to investigate. And as they get closer, they start hearing all this noise inside. And they start realizing it's voices. Some of them are singing. Some of them are talking quite loudly. And some of them start going, ha, I think someone started partying a little soon. And others are going, wait a second, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. What is going on? And as they got closer, suddenly they heard these people praising God. In their language. They look in and go wait. That, that guy looks like he's from Galilee. And yet. How, how does he know my language? There's no, there's no way he knows my language. And what, what's he saying? And they lean in. They start listening. Now a crowd has gathered. And Peter stands up. And gives a sermon. Declares the gospel. Tells people that Jesus died on a cross by the hands of the Romans and the Jewish leaders. But he did that to die for our sin. But he rose again from the dead. And so he now invites us to follow Jesus. And verse 41 tells us that 3,000 people believed. That leads us to our second word. They. The they of verse 42 are the 3,000 
found in verse 41. So it's the 3,000 who have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's the 3,000 who have devoted themselves to the fellowship. It's the 3,000 who are breaking bread. It's the 3,000 who are giving themselves to prayer. The they are those 3,000. And as you study Acts 2, you realize this is the birth of the church. And so what is the first thing we notice about the church? It is not a building. It is not a political organization. It's not just a nonprofit. It is a they. It is people. That's the first part of our definition. The church are the redeemed people of God. And notice, I put an adjective on there. The redeemed people of God. It's because, you see, it's these 3,000 people who have been redeemed. They have been saved. They've understood that their sin kept them separated from God. These were good Jewish people. They had been doing all of the Jewish laws and customs. And yet they realized they had to keep making sacrifices. To keep doing these things because their sins were never fully washed away. And now Peter stands up and declares, your sins have been washed by Jesus. But he wasn't just any human. He is God. He rose again from the dead. So now give your life to follow him. They have been redeemed. Because it's not just any collection of people. I mean, you you can go to a sporting event. There's fans there. They're having a lot of fun. And it honestly, it looks like worship as they worship their heroes out on the field trying to win the game. But it's not a church. You could go to a political rally. There could be a lot of fervor. People are really excited when their candidate walks up there. It looks a lot like worship, but it is not a church. I mean, you could go to all sorts of functions where there are people gathered. It isn't until it is the redeemed people of God who have gathered together because Jesus died on the cross for their sins that it begins to become a church. Now, don't misunderstand this. Some churches, when they realize that the church is the redeemed people of God, they, in a sense, close their doors on anyone else. They, they in a sense, say, in order to become a part of this, you have to believe like us. I mean, after all, that's kind of what the world does. I mean, if you want to join a political party, it's kind of expected that you're going to believe like they do. Like, if you want to join the Flat Earth Society, you can't be pushing forth a round globe. You know, they have, they, <laughs> you ever heard the joke? Flat Earth, join the Flat Earth Society. We have members all around the globe. Uh, love, love that joke. You know, we're, we're used to organizations saying, hey, if you want to be a part of this, You have to believe just like us. And the church for so long has done exactly that. But what I want you to notice is verse 47. It says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If this redeemed people of God had gathered all together and said, we all believe And now we have to lock the doors. You would not see verse 47. You would not see them having favor with the people out in the community. You would not see the Lord adding to their number day by day. Those who were being saved. Those whose eyes were being opened to the gospel. The only way verse 47 happens is if those redeemed people lived among the non-redeemed. In other words, the doors weren't closed. And you didn't have to believe exactly like us in order to be a part of this. Instead, I suspect 
the church was letting some people come and be a part of this. And by belonging, these came to believe. But in America, we often expect that we got to like open things up and we got to kind of wash down our convictions in order for people to be a part of this. That's not what we see the church do. The church is as passionate as ever about Jesus. So yes, the unbelievers, the non-believers, the unredeemed, they're a part of it. And yet the church does not water down their convictions at all. So that, that means if you are not a follower of Jesus, you can be a part of Riverwood. Come, be a part. Sunday mornings, that door is open to anyone. Come and be a part. We'll invite you into our growth groups. You could even go with us and serve at the, the food bank every second Tuesday of the month. Like, you can come and be a part of this. Now, does this mean that you're going to get to become an elder? No. To be an elder of the church, you have to have a firm faith in Jesus. You have to have a certain spiritual maturity. But there is so much open. Come be a part. I say this all the time. But I, if this is your first time joining us, I, I, I say it again. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here. Because we actually started Riverwood Church for you. Our mission is to help the spiritually disconnected. So if you feel disconnected from God, we want to be your church. We want to do everything we can to help you find Jesus. Because we believe Jesus is the connection to God. But as much as we are going to open our doors to you, you just got to know, we are not going to water down our conviction about Jesus. It is all about him. I mean, you hear it in our definition of a follower of Jesus, a disciple. To love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Now, because we say we are Jesus-centered people, it does not mean that we ignore God the Father or we pretend there's no Holy Spirit. No, we follow a triune God. There's one God, three persons. The reason we say we are a Jesus-centered church is because it is Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. It's Jesus who rose again from the dead. And it is Jesus who says, come follow me. So we want to see people become more like Christ because we believe our world desperately needs people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So that is why we talk about being a Jesus-centered church. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we want you to hear that message. We want God to change your life because we believe that as you come to know Jesus, your whole life changes on the spiritual level, which then changes you emotionally and changes you relationally. The early church they were the redeemed people of God, but they still welcomed in the outsiders, but it didn't change their convictions about Jesus. But then I want to point out some of the things that these redeemed people did. How do a redeemed people of God live? The first thing we see is that the redeemed people of God give to one another. They give to one another. If you still have your Bible open there, uh, look at verse 45 there in uh, today's section. Verse 45 of Acts 2 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I do not believe Luke the author is trying to promote a socialistic government here. All right, I also don't think he's trying to say, no, you shouldn't do that. I think he's just merely reporting what the Holy Spirit told him to report. That these people had their lives so changed by Jesus that they saw Jesus sacrifice to provide for them. So they were willing to do the same, to sacrifice to provide for others. 
And so, okay, I've got this land. It's just been in my family for years. I'm not doing anything with it, and I have no plans for it. So we'll sell it off and give the money because that person, they have a need right now. And because God can provide for me, I believe God's going to use me to provide for them. They give to one another. That kind of generosity stands out. We live in a world where it's all about get. I've heard some people complain about all the stimulus checks that, you know, the Trump administration and Biden administration have given. And yet they gladly will go and cash it. (laughs) Because, yeah, I don't think our government should be spending money that way. But all right, they gave it to me. I'm going to go ahead and use it because it's all about me. And so when we see generosity of, you know what, I'm going to give to others. Like it makes the news. I'm just this last week, I heard a story about some neighbors buying a basketball hoop for a kid in the neighborhood. And I'm looking at it going, okay, nice story. Why is this making the news? Because you just don't see generosity like that very often. No wonder God was adding to their number day by day. Because as these unredeemed people were living among the redeemed people of God, they saw this kind of generosity and realized that's different. I like it. And they didn't join up just so they could try and get something from them. They end up realizing Jesus gave his life for me. I want to now be a part of it. And I'm going to join the 3,000 who are giving generously. The reason I'm so comfortable right now talking about this is because we are a generous church. I'm not saying this to try to correct something. I'm already talking to those who have lived generously. Some of you have absolutely blown me away by the generosity you've shown. Riverwood would not be where it is today without you. And so I have a heart full of gratitude because of your generosity. But what I don't want to have happen is for us to live generously and then pat ourselves on the back and just begin to coast. Because just because we've been strong at it doesn't mean we can't continue to grow in it. That's why this fall, we're going to do a generosity series. Uh, the, the elders and I have been trying to figure out, how do we go about buying this building? We believe that is what God wants us to do. And so we've been talking about, do we do a capital campaign? But the more we talked, we realized, you know what? I don't think a capital campaign is the right thing. Because what a capital campaign does is it would get all of us to just give one time into something. And, and then we accomplish it. And hey, great. We accomplished our goal. We bought the building. Awesome. And yet, the generosity hasn't changed. I think it's actually more important for us to just continue to grow in generosity. Because generosity is not about us. It's about what God has done for us and what he wants us to go and do. Because this kind of generosity, it makes a splash. It makes an impact. We are not about just trying to get people to come to us. So much of Riverwood is about us going to them. But to live that kind of way, it's going to require generosity. And not just generosity of finances. At Riverwood, we talk about giving our fist, our finances, our influence, our skills, and our time. We see the Acts 2 church, these redeemed people, opening up their fist, giving it to one another to care for each other. And by doing so, it impacts the broader community. The generosity just continued to flow. I want to see that happen in us. So we see the redeemed people of God giving to one another. The second thing is, we see the they, we see them serve one another. There in verse 45, 
we see that they were selling their possessions and belongings, right? That, that's actually kind of American. Sometimes when we have a, see a need, we just write a check or we, you know, make an online, you know, uh, gift, donation, we're done. We, like, we don't get our hands dirty. We give some money, we feel good about ourselves. But notice what these guys did. It says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any who had need. They were actively involved. They were serving. The Apostle Paul, uh, we already looked at uh, the book of Ephesians briefly. He wrote another letter to a church in the ancient city of Corinth, another city that, that where he started a church. However, unlike the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth was a mess. And so much of Paul's letter It's a lot longer because he addresses so many issues with them. Because he longs for these people to be healthy, to follow Jesus, to be Jesus-centered. One of the topics he ends up addressing is the topics of spiritual gifts. Now, some Christians in our day and age love to go and study this passage. They, They open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And they get in there and they, they make it down to like verse 8. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another the utterance of knowledge. Uh, to another faith. To another gifts of healing. To another work in miracles. And like they go through the list and they ask themselves, so what's my spiritual gift? And what they've done is they make this whole entire conversation about me. What's my spiritual gift? I, I want to know my gift so I can use that because then people will be really impressed with me. But what you do is when you jump into verse 8, you miss a foundational verse in 7. Verse 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, each person who follows Jesus is given a gift. For what? For the common good. The spiritual gift is not given for you. The spiritual gift is given for others. It's for the common good. As you look at the early church, In Acts 2, seeing them sell off their possessions, they're giving this self for the common good. It was becoming about others, not just themselves. And so they saw a need and they stepped in and didn't just give to it. They actually stepped in and served. They gave of their energy, their time. They were involved. Again, I'm able to talk about this so comfortably because you guys have been so involved. I, this, watching you guys serve within the Riverwood family, watching you guys serve out in the community, whether it's the, the uh, uh, food bank. I know a number of you have helped out there, uh, whether it's, you know, in, in other areas. Like, you guys have been incredible. But again, I don't want us to just pat ourselves on the back and they, all right, we're done. Because our greatest days are probably ahead of us. There may be an area that we as a church are going to go serve that we don't even know about yet. And I want us to be poised and ready so that when God brings the opportunity our way, we together can say, we're the redeemed people of God and the redeemed people serve. This is our opportunity. We gotta go for that. So we need to know we're to serve, to serve one another and to serve our community. And then the third thing, the last thing that I see is that the redeemed people of God love one another. I almost didn't put this in here because it just seems obvious. Like if you're giving, you're serving, of course you love them. And then it hit me like, no, you, you could give with no love. 
Like you could serve out of duty. But, but if you notice down in verse, uh, in, here in Acts 2, verse 46, the second part of it says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Does that sound like people giving out of duty? Does that sound like people serving out of compulsion? No, this sounds like a people motivated by love. Because they have seen God's love for them through Jesus. And so because God loves them, they're going to go and love others. This is why we see the Apostle John uh, write this. This is 1 John 4, 7, and eight, uh, 7 through 9. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Do you hear what John is saying? That because God so loved us, we now need to go and love others. And if we're truly going to love a world out there, it's got to start right in here. We've got to love one another. It means we've got to be quick to forgive. We've got to be quick to listen. We've got to be quick to go and serve. When we find a need, we go in and we give. We love each other. Again, I'm able to talk about this because I am not worried about a bunch of contentiousness right now. I am not having to preach this to try to reprimand anyone, to rebuke you. I am saying this because you guys have done this. And I want to see us continue to do it better. Because we are the redeemed people of God. We are called to give. We are called to serve. And we are called to love. I want to be a part of a church like that. And I'm so thankful that I already am. But I don't want us to just pat ourselves on the back and begin to coast. Instead, I want us to lean in even more. Because I believe as we lean into Christ, we begin to do this better. Because after all, who gave more than Jesus? Who served better than Christ? Who loved to the end more than him? So if we want to continue to grow as the redeemed people of God, we've got to lean into Jesus. We've got to go to him. Because as we go to him, his spirit works in us and we become even more generous. We serve more enthusiastically and we love more purely because we are the redeemed people of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church family that you have created. Thank you for these redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray for the person who's joining us online or is here in person or is listening to the podcast that may not know you. And yet they've come this far in this sermon because there is something you're doing, calling them to you. And so Lord, I pray that right now they would give their life to you, that they would confess their sin, realizing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive that sin, but he rose again from the dead so that they could follow a risen savior. And so I, Lord, I pray that right now you would absolutely radically change their lives and let them become part of the redeemed people of God. And Lord, for those who already know you, I pray that you would help us to continue to grow in generosity, in our service, 
and our love. That we would continue to keep our eyes on Jesus, the one who gave it all, the one who served us completely, the one who has loved us to the end. That we might be the people you call us to be. Because God, I believe that that is where we will find our greatest joy in life. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us. If we need to repent, we would repent of our selfishness. We'd repent of the ways we've made things all about ourselves. That instead, you would just continue to turn our orientation outward. That we would see our brothers and sisters in Christ around us. That we would see that our neighbors, our coworkers, our extended family, those who desperately need you. And we would love them. We would serve them. We would give to them because that's what you, God, did for us. That even while we were weak, sinful enemies of yours, as you say in Romans 5, you, Jesus, loved us so much, you died for us. And so, God, if you, a perfect holy God, could love a sinner like me, help me to live my life to love others, to give, to serve, and to point them to you. In Jesus' name we pray.